From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. We had a responsibility in how we wrote about the people and referred to the food. So much so that we wouldn't appear as a sideshow or uh, exoticize. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Now, you just heard from Nicole Ponseca, who is the co-author, along with Miguel Trinidad, of the new cookbook, I Am a Filipino, and This is How We Cook. Nicole and Miguel are the dynamic duo behind Maharlika, the popular and highly reviewed New York City restaurant serving home-style Filipino food. I love Filipino food, and there's a growing number of Filipino restaurants in the United States, and rightly so, as Filipinos compromise the second largest population of Asian Americans, second only to Chinese. In fact, today one in five Asian Americans are of Filipino heritage. But in the U.S., the cuisine of the Philippines, a country of more than 7,000 islands, has taken a backseat to other Asian cuisines like Thai, Chinese, Korean, and Indian which is exactly why Nicole and Miguel opened their first cookbook with the question, why not Filipino food? Nicole and Miguel don't shy away from some of the reasons Filipino cuisine remained relegated to little manilas and in-home kitchens, including the impact of colonizations. Yet the cuisine is incredibly diverse. We see that as Nicole and Miguel travel all over the Philippines for this book, and in Nicole's words, is universally delicious. And that goes beyond just adobo and lumpia. Now, Nicole writes, Filipino food is finally out of the shadows and enjoying its time in the sun. It finally feels like a Filipino food renaissance. So in today's episode, we're talking with Nicole and Miguel about what makes Filipino food universally delicious, about what they learned traveling around the Philippines, and about the challenges they faced writing a cookbook they hope will change the conversation about Filipino food. And then we're talking to Yana Gilbuena, founder of the Salo series. Yana hosted pop-up Filipino dinners in all 50 states and is writing a cookbook about the experience. Plus, as always, we're stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. But first, let's head to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where we sat down with I Am a Filipino authors, Nicole Ponseca and Miguel Trinidad, to talk cookbooks. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Miguel. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. We're glad to have you. So we're here to talk about your cookbook, I Am a Filipino, and This is How We Cook. Mm. Let's go back a little bit and talk about how you sort of got into food and the restaurant industry, all of which sort of led to and culminated in this beautiful, uh, incredible cookbook. So Nicole, I know you were an ad executive working in New York City and saw really a lack of representation of Filipinos, both in um, media, in your day job, but also in in food and in restaurants. Yeah. I'm nodding my head and I'm, <laughs> I'm realizing people can't hear head nods. So yes, I, I am, um, verbally head nodding with you throughout that intro. Yeah. I, I actually went to college here at the University of San Francisco and, uh, I graduated like on May 23rd and then I, I hightailed it to New York on a one way ticket on June 1st. And it became very clear to me what little representation we had in media. And in the decisions that advertising campaigns would make, you know, uh, it became very much a black and white issue. 
and uh, the shades of brown in between weren't yet as apparent as they are now. And it's still even just beginning now. I thought to myself, what could I do to help change that? I was 21 years old. And that's when I really consider myself an activist first, then an entrepreneur. I just happened to be in food. And you have to imagine this is pre-social media, pre-Instagram. Food Network was just beginning, but it wasn't as glamorized as it is now food. And and I, I just had an idea that if I couldn't do it in any other way, maybe I could just at least get the food out there and then people would notice the the culture, the people, and maybe even be inspired to travel. Yeah. And you open the cookbook with a quote from Carlos Romulo's essay or poem, I am a Filipino, um, which of course is also the title of your book. Why did you decide to open your book with that? Or does that have particular significance to you? There's so many layers to that title and to the poem and Carlos Romulo and, and who I am, uh, my identity, my intersectionality. Uh, someone asked me, why didn't I name it? I am a Filipino American. And then I, there's no room on the, <laughs> on the cover of the book, but I knew I was Filipino because of food. My dad introduced me to flavors that I would not have otherwise had. Uh, my mother was skeptical whether or not I would take to things like bagoong and fermented shrimp paste and things like that. But my dad was very confident. And so I, I think the title, uh, who I am as a person, my understanding of my roots comes from my father and that confidence and that, and that poem, this speech speaks to that. I have an obligation to whatever I came from, to my past and a responsibility and obligation to the future. So mm. I couldn't very well name it Filipino flavors or, I mean, I, there wasn't a title. This yeah. was so, so obvious to me. And when we pitched it to publishers, you know, there's a little part of you that says, are they going to get it? And some didn't. A lot of people closed doors on us, but our publisher really got it. And that to me was everything. Yeah. And I think, um, it, it really shows in the photography and the recipes and the essays in here, which I want to talk more about in a minute, but let's bring you in, Miguel. So you came into the picture. You met Nicole working, you worked at a restaurant together, right? Yes. And, and your background, you went to culinary school. You were, you're trained as a chef. What drew you to Filipino food? Was it Nicole? Um, yes, it was Nicole. We were working together. Uh, at this restaurant in Soho. You know, she had this dream to open up a Filipino restaurant. I wanted to uh, open up a restaurant as well. Uh, she couldn't find anybody that believed the food would be accepted mainstream, that people would pay for um, the cuisine. They, everybody thought it should be cheap. Mm. And, you know, we teamed up. And for me, it was a, an opportunity to explore a different cuisine that nobody was doing. It it's like having a pantry of new flavors, new techniques, and new foods that nobody knew about or very little people knew about. Yeah. Um, so it was an easy choice to jump into this. Yeah. And do you think like the fact that you're not Filipino by heritage like benefited you in some ways because you could approach the food from with your culinary perspective and then with Nicole's input and also your incredible research and work together? Does that bring like a, a fresh perspective in your mind or did you face 
um, backlash or criticism because you're not Filipino. Well, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not being Filipino, all the information I got was from Nicole Mm -hmm. or from books or from her dad. So it was easy for me to make the food in the way that they wanted it. But as we continued to do R and D, we saw that there was a lot of similarities between Caribbean Latin food and Filipino food. In the Philippines, they eat caldereta. In Dominican Republic, we eat chivo guisao. Afritada would be our pollo guisao. So there was a lot of similarities in the food, and it was very easy to assimilate, for a better sense of the word. And yeah, you know, there was a lot of backlash because I wasn't Filipino. People were like, hey, you don't, you're not Filipino. How are you cooking our food? I said, well, you know, have you ever made spaghetti? Yeah, you're not Italian. <laughs> yeah. Right? So you don't have to necessarily be Filipino in order to cook Filipino food or Dominican to cook Dominican food or American to cook a hamburger. Are there dishes that you recommend to people who pick up your book and say, I'm not super familiar with Filipino food. Where do I start in my home kitchen? Where do I, where, do, where does one start with Filipino food? Yeah. I think uh, I would first like to thank anyone who gets this book, um, for the Filipinos, I feel that they definitely see the title and, and are gravitating toward it just like I did because there's so lack of representation, just holding something tangible. Yeah. And for those who are not Filipino getting the book, like, thank you so much. Uh, I will tell you, you might be pleasantly surprised if you don't know Filipino food, how much the larder that you have at home is already represented in this book. If you have soy sauce and vinegar, garlic and bay leaf, you, you already have the, the base of Filipino uh, flavor profiles, which is adobo or a classic adobo, mm-hmm. which is where I would start. And it, it's, uh, aside from a couple of recipes in the, in the introduction, that's how we start the book, which is, uh, the oldest recipe documented in the Philippines, which is kinilao. And uh, once you get that, you understand Filipinos penchant for sour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not spicy cuisine, except for a few regions. Or it's not especially sweet. We have this idea of maasim. So start with uh, kinilao or a classic adobo. And there's one other recipe I would suggest, and that is the garlic rice, which we call senangag. And if you get that, I guarantee you may not look at rice ever again. So simple, so flavorful, and so bomb. And you also chose to include a section at the beginning called Filipino 101, sort of talking to people about some of the basics of Filipino cuisine, Mm -hmm. which, as you read through your book folks understand is very varied, right? I mean, the Philippines is 7,000 islands. There's incredible variance in culinary practices from northern to southern and um, across the region. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the interesting things? Like for me, I was particularly drawn to what you call the mother sauces, um, the Filipino mother sauces. Yeah. Very quickly getting into Filipino food and then approaching this book, I became further acquainted with the idea of decolonizing the mind or decolonizing uh, vocabulary. Yeah. And when we look at food on its whole, we know food in terms of escoffier and uh, French cuisine. Yeah. And that being a standard. And I wanted to have our own standard for Filipino food in the vernacular of mother sauces, but that we have also our own in classic technique and cooking. For me, the mother sauces can be coconut milk-based, tomato-based, Etc. Uh, as you would uh, valute and you know the the French mother sauces, Miguel. You know the mother sauces are the mother sauces because the French were the first ones to actually document everything. Mm-hmm. But 
every different culture has their own method of cooking. In Filipino cuisine, for instance, you know, you brown garlic, which in French cuisine, that's just a fault. You don't do that. Yeah. Um, so it was very important for us to explain how the techniques were different and how they were unique to the Philippines by putting it in that section, Filipino 101. And so the five mother sauces are, are sour that you you suggest it could be sour, yes. coconut, funk, tomato, and then the brown garlic is part of the Holy Trinity, which um, for Filipino cooking is browned garlic, Spanish onion, and ginger. I think a lot of people who are not Filipino, who are exploring Filipino cuisine, sort of think of, they think of adobo, they think of lumpia, they think of some of the classics you might find, um, and then in particular think about the importance of sour and the importance of the funk or the acidity sometimes coming from seafood sometimes coming from citrus or vinegar you also note that there's some history of cooking in liquid fire which translates to a particular term there is a wonderful writer who's no longer with us her name is doreen fernandez and I think she passed in the late 90s. But she had been documenting Filipino food in the 60s and 70s and well into the 80s. What I liked about Doreen is she approached the food with, again, the word confidence and a sense of non-comparison, that the food stands on its own, to research on its own, the history, the techniques. And she coined the term liquid fire. And it corresponds to kinilao, which is a Filipino version of ceviche, which we know is likely the oldest recipe known in the Philippines. When we understand Filipino food and take kinilao and that ingenuity and the flavor profile, it, it spans many regions. And that, for me, throughout all of our travels, because we traveled from the most northern all the way to a region called Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao, which is mm-hmm. has been stigmatized and um, kind of separated from the, the rest of the country. That was apparent throughout all the foods, all of the the menus, all of the uh, familiar uh, fam- familial homes recipes, and so even the idea of having sawsawan on the table, which the food is never finished until you finish it with your own sour based sauce or condiment, like how others would look at hot sauce. Ours is uh, a vinegar sauce. It's just was astounding to me, so eye-opening. I was like, Eureka, that's, that is the thread. And then all of the accessories, the smatterings of funk and like you mentioned ginger chilies. Hmm. So. Noting your traveling, and you traveled quite extensively for this book, and, and you in particular noted how, how significant it was for you to be able to go to your parents' home country and travel extensively and see some of what you heard as a child come to life. Tell me more about what it was like to travel through the Philippines and what sort of lessons you learned or maybe things that surprised you as you were putting this cookbook together. Traveling through the Philippines was incredible because, I mean, from region to region, the food changed drastically. Uh, Up in the mountain regions, it was very vegetable forward. You know, everybody has a garden and they grow vegetables and you just walk out and pick out whatever's ripe, and that determines your menu for the evening. As you go more towards central Manila, it's more meat-centric. As you travel out to the coastal regions, you're going to find it's heavy in seafood. But then you travel down to Mindanao, which is a Muslim area, and the flavor profiles change. But one thing that's constant is vinegar. 
vinegar is not only so important in cooking and in the flavor profile of Filipino food, but it was also used as a form of preservation. So an adobo, you can cook it in one pot and you can let it sit, you know, a day and it would still be good and it wouldn't spoil. Um, the flavor profiles in Mindanao were very interesting because, man, we saw things we've never seen before. Yeah. And even talking to some of the elders, you know, her, her dad, Nicole's father, um, some of the yayas and lolas here in New York, it's like they hadn't heard of half of the things that we saw in Mindanao. So that was very exciting for us because it was a brand new cuisine within a, a, a country that we were already exploring all the things that we were familiar with. What sort of things were you seeing that were so interesting? I mean, uh, adobo, for instance, it changes. There's so many different types of adobo. Mm -hmm. In uh, a classic adobo is garlic, bay leaves, soy, and peppercorns. In Mindanao, you have adobo dilao, which just means yellow adobo, and there's turmeric instead of soy. So you'll see a lot of Indian, Malaysian, Singaporean flavors um, intertwined with the cuisine, which is, for me, was really exciting. Yeah. Imagine being a kid at FAO Schwartz walking in on Christmas and it's like they open up a brand new section with all these new toys that you've never <laughs> seen before. That was Mindanao for me. You know, we had gone to the Philippines so many times and for months at a time, at least at the very least a month and a half at a clip, sometimes three months. There are a few experiences that I have that um, I'd like to highlight. One I mentioned in my acknowledgments, you know, having um, – uh, our motorcycle breakdown in, um, in midnight. And the idea that, you know, we're literally in the jungle. There ain't, there ain't no streetlights. There, yeah. There's no like GPS. There's no one. It's not a Vons around the corner. And uh, as soon as it hits 5 PM, it's pitch black. So it might not even have been midnight. I could tell you that it just felt that way. And not knowing what to do and seeing a, like a light far into the horizon and going there and them serving us lambanog or Filipino moonshine and offering food and drink and then fixing the motorcycle. Those, those, those experiences I'll never forget. Or the, the idea that because we're foreign and that there's someone actually interested in their culture or cuisine that the doors were opened for us so, so lovingly, so openly without even an ounce of restraint, yeah. just whatever's mine is yours. And I recall going down a river in Bohol in an area called Sorsogon and it is lined with trees. And at one point I'd never seen so many stars in the sky and they taught us how to call for fireflies. Hmm. And I it was so littered with stars. And then the fireflies, I could not tell where the stars had ended and the fireflies had begun. Wow. And in and, the and boat, they were singing traditional Filipino love songs. Like, this is, you can't make this up. And artisan having an opportunity to do the book. General public's now interest in Filipino food. I think that because I don't know if I would have had that opportunity. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with I Am a Filipino authors, Nicole Ponseca and Miguel Trinidad. Bay Area listeners, listen up. The Salt and Spine cookie swap is almost here. That's right. Salt and Spine and the Civic Kitchen are teaming up on Saturday, December 15th for a cookie swap to celebrate Salt and Spine's baking week. 
It'll be a fun afternoon of cookie swapping, baking tips, cookbook demos, and of course, glasses of bubbly and warm apple cider. Plus, taste some cookies from some of our favorite authors like Jessica Batalana, Nick Sharma, and others coming up in December. Plus, you might even walk away with a set of baking books and a new Salt and Spine t-shirt. You won't want to miss it. You can find all the information about how to participate at civickitchensf.com. We're talking now with Yana Gilbuena, founder of the Salo series. Salo is a movable Filipino pop-up dinner series that Yana hosted all across the United States, cooking Filipino food in all 50 states. Plus, she's writing a cookbook about the experience. Hi, Yana. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm good. How are you? Great. So I wanted to talk to you briefly about this dinner series you did, the Salo series, where you actually traveled across um, all of the United States and cooked Filipino food in all 50 states. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to do that and maybe what you learned in that process. I guess what inspired me to leave everything <laughs> and take on this like project um, for a year was even though I was living in New York, I felt that Filipino food was still very underrepresented. And I kind of took it upon myself to like be the ambassador <laughs> of Filipino food. And I was like, well, if I'm having problems and I grew up in the Philippines and I can't find my own food in the melting pot of New York, what more are those other Filipinos who are in the diaspora probably struggling with? So I. I kind of wanted to do that and also share my knowledge about Filipino food while traveling because I feel like a lot of people have been not jaded, but like I've always thought of Filipino food as just a double pancit and lumpia. And I know that we are, we are way beyond that. So, and I think that was done during the time when Maharlika and Jeepney were like really booming in New York. And then that's when like, pop-up dining was still like a novelty to a lot of people. And I thought doing pop-up dinners across the U.S., using that platform to spread the gospel of Filipino food would be the way to go. Well, I learned a lot, definitely. I learned that I didn't need a lot of things to live, (laughs) that everything that I need can be in a one suitcase. Um, and then I learned that people are not out to get you. Um, and there's so much trust and kindness and generosity that like lives in this world beyond all the fear mongering that's been going around lately. And trust me, like I had a shaved head with, you know, different colored hair going from state to state. And I was probably one of like, you know, countable brown people (laughs) that were traveling (laughs) and people that didn't even know me because it was all through like a network of networks. So I was either couch surfing or an auntie who lived in Montana or something like that took me in. And a lot of times we didn't even know each other and they would just welcome me in their home and treat me as part of their family. So that project alone, like restored my faith in humanity. That's really awesome. And you're turning, you're taking that project now and turning it in some form into a cookbook, right? You're working now uh, on a a kickstarted cookbook uh, based on some of your experiences and some of the food that you cooked across the country. Yes. Um, So uh, it was kickstarted last year and we just finished a final edit 
And just this morning, my book designer sent me the final proof. So I'm very excited to get this. um, Because a book on its own is like another project that I did not anticipate would take this long. Um, And it is about my travels throughout the 50 states. And there's like anecdotes for each chapter. So the chapters are kind of run the same way that I um, jumped from state to state. So it starts in Florida and then it ends in Hawaii and each state will have um, recipes that I have used in those states and using their local and seasonal ingredients. That's awesome. That's so incredible that you were able to incorporate local ingredients too. So we talked with uh, Nicole and Miguel about Filipino food sort of uh, being a Filipino food renaissance is the term Nicole uses to describe this moment. Um, We're Mm -hmm. seeing Filipino restaurants open up all across the country. How do you feel about the state of Filipino food in the United States? I'm very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Mainly because I I think it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you go to a country and you are trying to look for that taste of home. And when your food is not represented, you're not represented, and it doesn't feel like home anymore, even though this is your second home. And so it's nice to see so many people finally, like, having that courage to share what home means to them through food. And it's because, like, a lot of Filipinas for the longest time didn't even think of, like, venturing in the food world. We were always known as, like, the stereotypical Filipino nurses, you know, or it's either that or accountants or anything in the medical field, really. So it's nice to, like, see this beautiful sprouting of, like, a new growth of another industry that we can express ourselves. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Yana. This was really wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. Now back to our conversation with Nicole Ponseca and Miguel Trinidad, authors of I Am a Filipino. You two have been credited with helping push Filipino food more into the narrative with your restaurants in New York City. And I think 10, 11 years now you've had... Your first restaurant was Maharlika. Am yeah. I pronouncing that right? Maharlika. Maharlika. I'll give you a little tip. When you when you want to pronounce anything in Tagalog, okay, the second syllable gets the emphasis. Okay. Okay. So Miguel and I are gonna we're gonna t- test drive this. Yes, okay? please. In English, you'd say hamburger. In Tagalog, you'd say hamburger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you say <laughs> okay. In my in my my accent, I would say ketchup. You would say. Catch up. <laughs> <laughs> so that has become our rule of thumb. Just this. So for Maharlika. 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 There Got you it. go. Okay. Maharlika. Um, uh, yeah, I think, have we been credited? Yes. Do I know the work that we put in? Yeah, obviously, because in 1998, when I graduated from USF and I came to New York, we're spoiled in San Francisco. They, yeah. We are, it's like Ate and Lola Corner. You know, we know everyone or they're your auntie by some iteration. In New York, it was not like that. And then when I looked around, yes, there was Cendrillon, fantastic restaurant in Soho. And there were the smatterings of restaurants on the outskirts, which would be the equivalent of like Daily City for San Francisco proper. But my whole mission is something inspired by Toni Morrison, which is how can I get people to understand the culture, not by going to the fringe, but by proclaiming and centering ourselves in the center. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what we've helped accomplish for Filipino food. 
Yeah. And certainly with your restaurants and now with your first cookbook. Mm -hmm. So you've talked extensively about, about that mission, about helping to bring Filipino food to the masses and to to pay homage to, to those traditions and those culinary identities. And and on our terms. And on your terms. And to change the conversation is a phrase you often use to change the conversation around the foods you grew up on, which I want to talk a little bit about because in some part, in some way that was inspired by your childhood and by feeling that your food was inadequate or seeing your foods and your customs mocked. I mean, you know, in the cookbook that Howard Stern made mockery of Filipino food, that um, Filipino dishes were featured on Fear Factor as like things contestants would have to be bribed Mm -hmm. to want to eat. How much, uh, how much of a factor was that for you in sort of fueling that desire to change the conversation and how much did that like steer you towards food as the vehicle for for changing the conversation beyonce recently said something that she'd love to have a dinner conversation with people it doesn't have to be politically correct but you have to have respect and compassion and integrity so i preface this by saying sometimes i don't know the appropriate words but i know that i grew up multicultural being one half American and going to school with my American um, counterparts and then going home and then understanding I am also fully Filipino. How could you be 100% of both? I I feel that. Uh, So my dad really instilled in me, don't forget where you're from. Don't forget you're Filipino. He It was almost like out of fear for him that I would forget where I'm from. And because his English is not very good and uh, we only could speak through the language of food. And because of that, when I would hear things like Howard Stern or go to school and my, my teachers reference fear factor as their only introduction to my culture, uh, and going home and being so proud of it, I, and looking back now, that question, I don't think there was any other option for me to exercise my, my power. Um, or my, any of my skill sets in trying to get, um, a voice for my culture. Yeah. I don't, I think it was probably pre, preordained, pre, predestined. Yeah. So I think we've noted how you've helped shift the restaurant industry. I think you've been players in helping move the restaurant industry. This is one of the few, you know, mainstream Filipino cookbooks. Mm-hmm. I think as you know, there, you saw a lack in the cookbook industry mm-hmm. as well of representation. What has the reception been like to this book? We were just talking before the show about your event at Omnivore Books and, yeah. and how crowded and packed it was and how many people were there to hear from you. It has been received extremely well. I mean, Filipinos are very proud of it. It's something that shouts out, I am Filipino. Right. And like Nicole said, it was, there wasn't enough representation. And this is just not only a cookbook, but a manifesto of our travels and what Filipino food is all about. There's so many different, um, cross sections of people that are rallying behind the book. There's people who are older generation. And when we've done our signing, I can't even begin to tell you how many of the older generation, I'm saying like 60 plus who feel what I wanted to communicate, which is, I see you. Yeah. And I see where you were from. And I'm also channeling, like you said, a change of conversation that they may not have even considered in that being what in Tagalog we say, uh, hiya, 
the idea that, wow, was I ashamed of our food? Did I, why did I call it euphemistic words like chocolate stew and versus blood stew? Like it's so deep. And then there's younger generation, maybe in their early thirties to early twenties. And they're also saying, wow, I'm, I am seen as well in a different way. Or, um, there are food critics and editorials that are also really liking the book. Um, because what Miguel said, it's the first cookbook that's ever really approached the food by its influences and interlopers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you even read about the American chapter, very honest about the influence that being white sugar and processed flour, it's been, it's been a wonderful ride. Yeah. I think that's one thing that's so fascinating about your book in particular, too, is that you are, as you noted, very honest and direct about the impact that trade with other countries that colonization has had on the evolution of Filipino food. And Jose Antonio Vargas wrote the foreword to your book, and he refers to Filipino food as the original fusion food, sort of pulling from all of these influences. You also noted, I think, in some conversations that I've read that you've you've had that you noticed uh, recipes disappearing or traditions changing. And then I think in the book, you note that you were able to travel to some places where um, culinary traditions and recipes are still more or less intact. How did that sort of influence you in terms of wanting to preserve some of those recipes and preserve some of those culinary traditions and customs? I think that uncovering those techniques or dishes uh, was did not influence the book. The, okay. the knowing that we had to search for it did. We didn't go into the Philippines with knowing what to ask. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you don't know. So we didn't go to the Philippines knowing. Okay, if we go to Bicol, we're going to learn how to press milk using a seesaw. If we go to Mindanao, we didn't know that the predominant spices would be baking spices and a lot of the savory cuisine. But the quest to find it influenced our, our travels and, and, and an insatiable journey to knock on doors or to make friends or to say, what, what's behind that door over there? And by asking these questions, we got to – things just kind of developed organically. You know, we were in a town of Ifugao, which, you know, this is the last generation of shaman that will continue the traditions because the younger generation doesn't want to continue it. Uh, we got to learn how they, how they cook their chicken. It's a, it's a whole ritual, you know, sacrifice of the chicken and honoring the animal and then making wine from rice. The whole process was shown to us and that just led into it, it sparked interest, even more interest. And we wanted to dig further deep into the culture and the regions to find out more about what the traditional dishes were or the heritage dishes were that right. are disappearing. I mean, I can speak for my family and maybe what I'm speaking for is um, represented in other Filipino Americans. But if you have any kind of means in the 80s, or 70s and in in 60s in the migration. Hell no, you're not using that money to to travel within the Philippines. You're you're getting out of Dodge. You're going to America. You're going to some Saudi Arabia. There's a big Filipino community in Spain and Sweden. 
because the travel wasn't meant to be within the country. That has changed. And I hope that this book further changes that. Now people are saying, I have means. Let's go back to the Philippines. Um, let's stay. We might live in Manila, but we want to go to Mindanao. That, yeah. that I think is very different. Also as a Filipino American, when I would go back, our parents, uh, would either keep us in the mall because there, it was shaded from the sun. So you wouldn't get dark. There would be air conditioning. So you would stay cool or you'd stay in the home. So venturing with Miguel, this is the first time I too saw the Philippines in a way that I would have never had, had I, you know, asked permission from my parents. It would have never let us do what we did. Um, hitchhike, take like really broken down buses that every time uh, the driver would step on the brake, a big sign would say, God bless us. Like really, <laughs> really wild experiences or spelunking. Uh-huh. Um, and in some ways I almost died on one of our trips. It's just, I, I would never have done that had it not been for the book. And you, you grew up cooking with your father. Right. Yes. You, you mentioned this briefly and, and he was a uh, cook in the Navy. Right. Yes. And I think you say that it gave you a sense of like escapism mm-hmm. being in the kitchen with him and that, you know, like um, cooking oxtail with him, cooking rice with him. Yeah. Well, we weren't going to play sports. We weren't going to do anything else. So it was the only way looking back, we could bond or, or watching Muhammad Ali. You know, like those were the two ways. And I had one cookbook, which was The Joy of Cooking. And I was fascinated by this cuisine. I was Mm. like, what is these creamy sauces and (laughs) use of dairy? Because we don't really have dairy in the Philippines. And um, that was my first exploration. I remember making a salad and just wowed. I mean, I was so... I was so fascinated with things like hamburger helper though too and like uh having turkey at Thanksgiving. What? Wow, people really do this. This isn't from just television. I I mean I loved I loved all of it. So You noted too that some publishers said no to mm-hmm. you. Did that feel like a, a a roadblock to you? Did that feel like we're not being valued in this predominantly white industry, not give, not even, you know, given the space to have negotiation conversations. I I really want to know Miguel's point of view and I'll just drop in two cents and then pass the mic. But when, you know, sometimes no becomes just part of your everyday. It doesn't knock you down, Mm -hmm. just kind of the fabric of your existence. So what I can say about my approach to Filipino food or, or opening the restaurant or just me as a person it became very clear to me, you're not going to please everyone. And that's cool. Yeah. And to those publishers who said, no, uh, thank you because you, you might not have been able to contextualize what I was feeling or thinking or visualizing. What I didn't know going into the process of writing the book was the idea of narrative. We're not, gonna, we're not the first Filipino cookbook and we're not the last. And you all, be talking about ingredients and techniques, hopefully from other restaurants like perhaps FOB and Bad Saint. And I'd like to plug and thank Artisan because there were so many times we missed deadlines. (laughs) And I know that's probably de rigueur of writing a book. We're not the first Filipino cookbook. We're not the last to miss a deadline. Okay, (laughs) let's bookend that. 
But what I can say is that I, I was not able to put into words my reluctance to meet deadlines. I knew something was wrong with some of the chapters we had worked on. And I struggled with what was it that was, was, um, instinctively pulling me back from meeting the deadlines. Hmm. And I only had since learned from talking to my friend Eldo Rotor, who works at Penguin Classics, and then our friend Juno Diaz, and then our other friend, uh, Jose Vargas, and actually one other person, Melissa Sapin. And okay. There were smatterings of people who were of color in the publishing world, but not in cooking. But at least I could call upon them to say, something doesn't feel right. I don't know how to put it into words. And Eldo told me that I could slaughter this statistic, but only 7% of the publishing world are people of color. So when we look at the publishers, the editors, the writers, the photographers, you know, the, the whole group, that's nothing, my goodness. Right. And so being Filipino is, is interesting because to use Miguel's word earlier, we do assimilate very, very well in different communities. So I feel very comfortable in a lot of different uh, rooms and um, social groups. But when it came to turning in some of the chapters, something was not right. And so when Elda told me that, I, I realized I had, we had a responsibility in how we wrote about the people and referred to the food. So much so that we wouldn't appear as a sideshow or uh, exoticized. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope from the book, aside from getting to know us, you know, I hope we sell gads of book. Miguel's like, we're getting to a second printing. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I just want to keep my head down and just keep making sure people know about the book and hear about the story and Filipino food. My goal is that we can continue to normalize, not exoticize. And I really hope that just um, to dimensionalize another person who has a mission, who has a dream. And uh, I hope that in some way, chicken adobo makes it on someone's Thanksgiving table yeah. this, this coming Thursday. We have to give thanks to Artisan because they were the publisher who really saw what we wanted to do. Uh, the other ones that said no, they wanted to make the book more their own. They wanted to be the puppet masters behind us. They weren't even down with the title of the book. They wanted to change it. They wanted to uh, soften it, whitewash it. Some of the recipes they wanted to completely change. And we were very adamant that we wanted to keep the recipes simple, make them extremely approachable, uh, not have people be afraid of it just because it's something that they don't understand. We wanted to educate people on what Filipino food was. And I've always come from from the place where if somebody tells us we can't do it, we're going to do it twice and prove them wrong. And that's why earlier today you said, you know, this is our first cookbook, and I want to thank you for that because it's been put out into the universe. This is the first one. Yeah. Let's unpack that. Is there more there? What's, what's next? <laughs> uh, you know, there was a lot of recipes that did not make it into the book. Okay. There was so much information that we brought back with us and so much we wanted to share. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll save that for volume two. Stay tuned. Yeah. Um, well, Miguel is um, going to be the new host of a show on vice judge judge rather. Um, he is going to be judging 
I'm one of the judges on the new season of Bong Appetit. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a cannabis cooking show for those uh-huh. who aren't familiar with it. Be Real is the host, Vanessa Lavarado and myself are judges. And that was a lot of fun filming that airs in January. Okay. So can we expect like a Bong Filipino cookbook? Like weed infused adobo or something? <laughs> <What's that? laughs> okay. okay. We did do, we did do a Filipino flower feast. Uh, we did a Kamayan on Bong Appetit in season one or two. Uh, where we did a whole combine that was infused. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, Brian. I'm well. Great. So we just talked to the authors of I Am a Filipino, and I'm hoping you have something to share with us about this book. Well, yes. This is a just an absolutely beautiful book. And actually, there have been quite a number of Filipino books that have come out in the past year or so okay. uh, that I'm really excited about. I even found a great um, Filipino um, distributor in the Philippines who's got even deeper, more intensive books about um, about Filipino cooking. And, you know, annoyingly, uh, Americans say that Filipino food has been discovered. Of course, <laughs> it hasn't been discovered. Right. It's been there all along. But right. <laughs> finally, Americans are starting to get into it. And yes. um, in especially like Los Angeles, I went to some wonderful restaurants that were uh, Filipino and uh, the food really, really excited me. So I'm thrilled to be able to add this one to the canon. It's an absolutely beautiful book and um, really significant. You know, it's not just about fried lumpia. It's, right. it's a lot of other cuisine too. Which is delicious. Yes. A great, yeah. Oh, a great absolutely. Point. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't point. have to just eat deep fried food and rice to enjoy, you know, it's sort of like the Southern food being, you know, all fried and everything. This is, right. There's a lot more to it. So I'm glad we're finally expanding our definition of Filipino food. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Celia. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from I Am a Filipino, the Adabong Manuk de Lao, or yellow adobo with chicken, and the Siniglao, or cured tuna with grilled pork. You can also enter our weekly giveaway to win your own copy of I Am a Filipino. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And of course, we'd love to see your reviews. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. 
Or you can listen to our first level 1 all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>